Hey folks, you are listening to part 8 of our series on the German Revolution and the early Weimar Republic. This is the last part in this series, not counting any bonus shows. To get the most out of it, I suggest going through the rest of the series beforehand. At the end of this show, I'm going to talk a bit about where we go from here. But first, part 8 and the finale of the fight for the Republic. We are determined that the vicious German cycle of war, pony peace, shall once and for all time come to an end. This is London Court. Here is a news flash. The German radio has just announced that Hitler is dead. Early this morning, the Soviet troops launched a general attack on Hungary. Those who foolishly sought power by riding the back of the tiger ended up inside. Tonight I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Not eyes have seen the... Say that we are mired in stalemate seems the only realistic, if unsatisfactory, conclusion. Over a million people here celebrating a day that they never thought would come. A day in which Germany became one country again. Launched the opening salvo of Operation Iraqi Freedom. If the iron dice must roll, may God help us. Quote, Observe that all white sight in self-command. Desert these throngs, now driven to demonry, by the imminent unreckoning. Naught remains but vindictiveness here amid the strong, and there amid the weak and impotent rage. Thomas Hardy, The Dynasts The next time, the Germans will make no mistake. They will break through into northern France and seize the channel ports as a base of operations against England. Marshal Ferdinand Foch, May 1919 The date is May 8, 1919, and the German people are about to awaken from a dream. A dream that had been so soothing and comforting since their government signed the armistice with the Allies ending the Great War, a war that had consumed Germany's wealth, its resources, and its population. And while the war was horrific beyond imagination, and the terms of the armistice were harsh, the German people could find some solace in the idea that their proud German army remained undefeated and a large-scale invasion of the fatherland had been averted. They told themselves that the coming peace would not be one of power politics, but one of reconciliation and understanding among nations. In their mind, this made perfect sense, since not only did Germany fight this war in self-defense, but the men that had caused Germany's entry into it had been driven out of power and into exile. A new, democratic Germany, maybe even united with its Austrian brethren, would take its place among the democracies of the world, not subjugated, but as an equal. And as a part of the newly created League of Nations, Germany will make sure 
that the horrors of the Great War never repeat themselves. This dream of a so-called just peace, shattering on that fateful day, May 8th, 1919, might just be more consequential for the idea of a German democracy than anything we have talked about thus far. More so than the defeat in the war, more so than marauding Freikorps or hunger for revolution. Let's take a look at the road towards this rough awakening, because as pleasant as this dream may be, there are people among the Allies whose vision for Germany is much different, and the Germans know this too. They know that if, say, the French had their way, they would see the entire country smashed into a hundred little pieces. But France is merely one of the Allies, and the dream that the German population has been caught up in for roughly six or seven months rests on the shoulders of a man who is not from France. A man whose speeches, if you read them today, almost seem prophetic, and who seemingly understood so clearly at the time what the rest of the world only understood in hindsight. Here is how this man warned the world of a peace that would fuel bitterness in January 1917. Victory would mean peace forced upon a loser, evictus terms imposed upon the vanquished. It would be accepted in humiliation under duress at an intolerable sacrifice and will leave a sting, a resentment, a bitter memory upon which term of peace would rest not permanently but only as upon quicksand. That man is Woodrow Wilson, the president of the country which arguably saved, or at the very least secured, the victory of the Allies in the Great War. One thing you have to understand about Woodrow Wilson at this time is that he is a rock star. He symbolizes to war-torn Europe and much of the rest of the world a turning away from narrow-minded nationalism that had just unleashed the worst war in human history towards internationalism, away from selfishness and destruction towards cooperation and human progress. The way he will make this happen is with something that hadn't really happened before at any point in history and certainly hasn't happened since. Instead of the great powers of the world carving up borders and countries how they see fit, it's going to be a giant conference. Not just for the big players, but for everyone. Even for people who aren't represented by a government necessarily or don't feel like they are. And not only will this conference end the war in Europe, but create a framework that will forever prevent anything like this from happening again. That is the mindset that brings Wilson to what will be known as the Paris Peace Conference. And when Wilson arrives in Paris in December 1918, it's as if, you know, the Beatles came to visit. The masses love him. The reason for why he is the man to embody what today might be called Wilsonian ideals is that even prior to this conference, he comes up with a roadmap, not just for peace, but lasting peace. This is called the 14 points. 
We talked about them before, so I don't want to go into too much detail, but this roadmap is pretty bold, especially for its time. Some of the points relate to Europe directly, like the creation of a Polish state with access to the sea, while others have much, much broader implications, like the, quote, free, open-minded, and absolutely impartial adjustment of all colonial claims, or absolute freedom of navigation upon the seas. Typically, not something you would see proposed by a great power. You think the French would like to see all colonial claims impartially adjusted, or that the British have an interest in freedom of navigation in the seas for their enemies? No. But Wilson seeming to speak for the little guy here, for those oppressed by great powers, gives him a lot of credibility. He seems like a true believer. The reason the Germans have so much faith in him is because a Wilsonian peace revolves around one idea in particular, a radical idea that Wilson brings up all the time, the idea of self-determination. If you take that to its logical conclusion, it means that the time of empire, where a people are controlled by a bigger entity against their will, has to come to an end. Everyone should have the right to be masters of their own destiny. At first glance, this idea might seem like a no-brainer. If we draw up the borders so that everyone has their share, there will be less of a motivation to go for someone else's, right? It's not that simple. And Wilson's advisors realize this too, and over the course of the conference, desperately plea with him to explain exactly what he means when he says self-determination. Because on the issue of a Polish state, it's straightforward. The Polish are a distinct entity in Europe. Here's where they live. This is where their state should be. But it's not that clear on other issues. What about Ukraine, for instance, which had been part of the Russian Empire, but at this time is embroiled in a very chaotic multi-front war. The Bolsheviks are invading. The Whites are fighting the Bolsheviks. Anarchist forces are fighting both, and among all the chaos, you have the Polish trying to grab some Ukrainian territory for themselves. So which of these groups has the right to self-determination in Ukraine? What about Ukrainian Catholics? Do they have the right to a state on their own? What about the Irish, who Wilson basically tells to go to hell when they approach him about an independent Ireland? So the idea of self-determination is loaded with all these hopes and dreams from people Wilson doesn't even think about when he utters those words. Historian Margaret Macmillan describes the image this idealism gave Wilson in her book on the Paris Peace Conference like this. What Wilson had to say struck a chord not just with liberals or pacifists, but also among Europe's political and diplomatic elites. Across Europe, there were squares, streets, railway stations, and parks bearing Wilson's name. Wall posters cried, We want a Wilson peace. In Italy, soldiers knelt in front of his picture. In France, the left-wing paper L'Humanité brought out a special issue in which the leading lights of the French left vied with each other to praise Wilson's name. The leaders of the Arab revolt in the desert, Polish nationalists in Warsaw, rebels in the Greek islands, students in Peking, Koreans trying to shake off Japan's control, all took the 14 points as their inspiration. 
Now, everything Wilson is selling sounds great from our perspective, uh, but he is also someone who has a very hard time seeing issues from a perspective different from his own. In addition to that, he himself doesn't even rise to the ideals he so proudly proclaims to the world. Because Wilson surely didn't extend this idea of self-determination to the Philippines, Puerto Rico, or any other American possession. He also saw black leaders removed from the White House when they pressured him to do something about the abysmal conditions for black Americans in the South. On a personal level, Wilson is also someone who is very narrow-minded and is quick to look down upon others and would regularly just fly off the handle when someone disagreed with him. Pair that with an ignorance on foreign affairs and geography, you get an explosive mixture, especially considering the people he would face off at the Paris Peace Conference. And nothing shows this better than the duration of the conference. Because before Wilson travels to Paris, his assumption is that this get-together will go over relatively quickly, just to hash out the common goals of the victors, after which the Germans will be invited and negotiations begin. And by that point, Wilson will already be back in the good old USA. Giving everyone self-determination will surely speed up the process of carving up borders, right? This conference will last six months. Six months of which Wilson will stay in Paris almost the entire time. In Paris, Wilson represents one of the so-called Big Four, the four major powers among the Allies. Those are the United States, the Italians, represented by their Premier of Victory, Prime Minister Vittorio Orlando. David Lloyd George is there on behalf of the British Empire. And the last man of the Big Four, who will give Wilson an enormous amount of headache, is the Tiger, Georges Clemenceau, for the proud nation of France. And you can see these guys clash even before the conference begins, because Wilson does not even want this to take place in France. He and Lloyd George favor Switzerland over a country that had fought in the war. Having it in France somewhat flies in the face of the idea of this conference not being the victors imposing their will on the vanquished. But Clemenceau's uncompromising attitude, coupled with the fact that rumors of revolution are getting louder in Switzerland, leads to Clemenceau getting what he wants. But this will only be the first of many issues that divide the Allies. And it really couldn't have been any other way. Because Wilson comes down to Paris, as the British Prime Minister will later say, like he was Jesus Christ himself. Totally blind to what the French and others might want out of this peace. On top of that, he brings with him this block-headed perspective that anyone who disagrees with him on what the goal of this conference should be, is not just wrong, but morally wrong. The French, in turn, are less concerned about Wilson's rosy vision of a new world order, and more so about Germany invading them again. Idealism is all good and well, but a Clemenceau has to think in more realistic terms. What he wants out of this conference is, first of all, justice. 
the Germans have to pay for what they have done, for every French soldier they have killed, for every farmstead they shelled. That is not just what he wants. More importantly, it's what the French people, in other words, his voters want, more than anything else. After four years of war, turning the other cheek is not what's on their mind right now. Clemenceau's second goal is making sure Germany will never ever be in a position to threaten France again, and it's not hard to see why this is so important to him. The last time the Germans invaded France wasn't that long ago, in 1870, when Clemenceau was a young man himself. And not just that, but he was in Paris when the Germans put it under siege. This was a defining moment for him. Seeing France get beaten badly, followed by Prussian hussars holding victory parades in Paris, coupled with a, in parts, quite brutal occupation. To add insult to injury, in the peace treaty, Germany made France pay a huge amount of reparations, which weren't even called reparations, because there really wasn't anything to repair in Germany. They were called restitutions. In other words, after the French saw that they had no way of winning this, Germany basically said, you declared war on us and you lost, so give us Alsace-Lorraine and a bunch of stuff to make up for it. The humiliation doesn't even end there. The German states, united in their war against France, finally consolidate as one and form the mightiest land power in Europe. Not just that, but the Germans declare their Kaiser, their Emperor, in France, in the Palace of Versailles, in the Hall of Mirrors, whose murals depict the French conquering German lands. This humiliation was so traumatic to the French that it birthed an entire political movement called Revanchism, Revenge, which Clemenceau is very much a child of. Legend has it that even on his deathbed, he gave the instruction to bury him standing up facing Germany. This is the guy Wilson wants to convince of a lenient approach towards Germany. For Wilson, that is easy to say. Because it wasn't the east coast of the United States that got ravaged by the war. It was mostly Belgium and France. And not just France, but the most prosperous, most industrialized regions of France. Now in ruins and depopulated. Every bridge, every railway, every tunnel destroyed by the Germans on their retreat in 1918. Turning what had been lush green fields and forests into something resembling the surface of the moon. Millions of their men, dead and maimed, with probably not a single French family that remained unaffected, who didn't lose a father or a son. It's easy to imagine these families not being too open about the suggestion to let bygones be bygones, especially not by the United States that had entered the war late and probably ended it richer than it had been at the start of it. Well, it is easy to imagine if you aren't Woodrow Wilson. He interprets any resistance to his high ideas as small-mindedness, basically. Now keep in mind that France and the US are only two of over 30 nations present at this conference, although they are certainly two of the three most important ones, Great Britain being the third one. 
As if Wilson and Clemenceau wouldn't be enough of an explosive couple, you also have the man in there that represents the British Empire, David Lloyd George, a man who is often described as having a, quote, devilish twinkle in his eyes, especially by the ladies. He's the only one of the big four who is from a lower middle-class background and who hasn't undergone any sort of elite education. Being the son of a schoolmaster, some in the British upper class somewhat look down on him, not just because of his father's occupation, but because David Lloyd George isn't even English. He's from Wales, which the English sometimes see as their poorer, rougher cousins. Lloyd George is also the youngest of the big four, and similar to Clemenceau, was the man that held his country together at a point where it really wasn't looking so well for the Allies. If Wilson is outmatched by Clemenceau in terms of fervor, he is way out of his league in terms of wit and quick-mindedness when put up against David Lloyd George. Absolutely masterful debater. At one point during the conference, while Lloyd George is making his case on something, his advisors realize that they have handed him the wrong briefing on a particular subject. So while Lloyd George is already standing up and arguing for one side of the issue, they hand him a paper informing him that he should be arguing for the opposite. And upon glancing at that note, without losing any time, he completely reverses his position mid-debate and ends up convincing the room of what he wants. Just incredible. That said, as he shares the endurance of a Clemenceau, he also shares the ignorance on world affairs of a Woodrow Wilson. While talking about the post-war European map, he reportedly asked, quote, uh, Who are the Slovaks? I can't seem to place them. The overall position he represents at the Paris Peace Conference is quite interesting because... Despite Britain being in the fight against Germany from minute one, he is not that opposed to taking a more lenient approach, similar to Wilson. If the main thing on Clemenceau's mind is French security, for Lloyd George, it's British economic interest. Because German or not, there are a lot of people in that country, and those people need to buy goods. British goods, if Lloyd George has his way. In addition to that, without Germany as a counterbalance, Russia, and although he would never say this publicly, France might become too powerful. In a lot of writing on the peace conference, the British are portrayed as more reasonable than the French. And I think that this is somewhat unfair, because if you think about it, Britain pretty much has all it wants before the conference even starts. They already have the German colonies, the German high seas fleet that the British had worried about so much in the lead up to the war is interned at Scapaflow in Scotland. So Lloyd George doesn't have to fight for as much compared to the French. These three, Wilson, David Lloyd George and Clemenceau, are the ones at the Paris Peace Conference that really lay down the law. A lot of nations might be present, but these three are the ones who, at the end of the day, call the shots. Now, some of you might wonder, what about the fourth one in the big four, Vittorio Orlando representing Italy? Well, when the rubber meets the road, the big four are really just the big three, with Italy being the 
runner-up, if you will. But while the big three might see Italy as a sort of junior partner, Vittorio Orlando comes to the Paris Peace Conference representing a country that had lost more men in the war than the UK, and he demands what his country is owed for its sacrifices. There is so, so much about the Paris Peace Conference that is fascinating to look at, be it the creating of Yugoslavia or the carving up of the Middle East and Africa. It's a topic that could fill a podcast series on its own, but to focus on what is important for us, despite all the high ideals that Wilson had in mind for this conference, it quickly devolves into an exercise in land grabbing. Clemenceau wants the German coal mines in Syria. Orlando wants the ports at the Adriatic that are supposed to go to Yugoslavia. The Greeks want a bigger piece of the Ottoman Empire. At one point, the Queen of Romania shows up demanding half of Hungary. All the horror that Europe and the world has gone through in the last four years didn't seem to have the effect that Wilson hoped for for the people at the Paris Peace Conference. And throughout the conference, even Wilson would start to see the upsides of a harsh peace with Germany. But even if we take Germany out of the equation, the Paris Peace Conference will leave a lot of people bitter and disappointed because it did not live up to its promises. The Allies turned out to be much more flexible on the issues of self-determination than many had hoped. One of the men petitioning the great powers on behalf of his people, currently living under French rule, is named Nguyen Aikwok. His request isn't even acknowledged, but immediately dismissed by a low-level British diplomat. This won't be the last time the French or the Americans will encounter this man, though, because he will go on to bring independence to his people, the people of Vietnam, by violent means, after switching to a different name, Ho Chi Minh. In fact, the stark disappointment in the transparently hypocritical Western powers in Paris is what will lead people like Ho Chi Minh to look for more radical solutions to achieve their aims. This is what Woodrow Wilson would slowly grow to represent to the Germans and many others around the world hypocrisy, a false friend who doesn't stand by what he says, a man too weak to stand up against European imperialism. Here is how another young man at this conference phrases it. Wilson in Paris was like an ant on a hot skillet. He didn't know what to do. He was surrounded by thieves like Clemenceau, Lloyd George, Machino, and Orlando. He heard nothing except accounts of receiving certain amounts of territory and of reparations worth so much in gold. He did nothing except to attend various kinds of meetings where he could not speak his mind. One day a telegram read, President Wilson has finally agreed with Clemenceau's view that Germany not be admitted to the League of Nations. When I saw the words, finally agreed, I felt sorry for him for a long time. Poor Wilson. The man who wrote this also calls the Allies shameless for pretending to care about self-determination, and he will go on to make his own mark on history, leading a revolution and uniting his divided country into the People's Republic of China. 
that man calling Wilson an ant on a skillet was Mao Zedong. Now, apart from these guys, there is one man in particular whose fame is connected to the Paris Peace Conference more so than anyone else's. He is not a revolutionary leader, quite the opposite actually. It's a British economist by the name of John Maynard Keynes, who is there as a representative of the British Treasury. By the time the conference comes to an end, he will be so depressed and disgusted by his experiences that he resigns from the Treasury, heads back to Britain, and writes a screed on the conference titled The Economic Consequences of the Peace. Mainly, this is a book discussing the economic implications of the decisions made in Paris, but it has its fair share of sassiness, I'd say. Here's how Keynes talks about the conference in the opening to his book that will become an international bestseller. Paris was a nightmare, and everyone there was morbid. A sense of impending catastrophe overhung the frivolous scene, the futility and smallness of man before the great events confronting him, the mingled significance and unreality of the decisions, levity, blindness, insolence, confused cries from without, all the elements of ancient tragedy were there. Seated, indeed, amid the theatrical trappings of the French saloons of state, one could wonder if the extraordinary visages of Wilson and of Clemenceau, with their fixed hue and unchanging characterization, were really faces at all, and not the tragic comic masks of some strange drama or puppet show. So yeah, this guy did not mince words, but despite all the personal attacks in his book... His critique of the Allies at Paris is striking, especially reading it now, because Keynes believes that the Allies should, instead of talking about punishment and haggling around little pieces of land, focus on getting Europe's economic engine running again. That way, everyone will be better off in the long term. He even makes a prediction of what might happen if the Allies go the other route of in Keynes' mind, overly punishing Germany and the other central powers. Here's what Keynes wrote in the chapter Remedies, and keep in mind, he wrote this in 1919. If we take the view that, for at least a generation to come, Germany cannot be trusted with even a modicum of prosperity, that while all of our recent allies are angels of light, all of our recent enemies, Germans, Austrians, Hungarians, and the rest, are children of the devil that year by year Germany must be kept impoverished and her children starved and crippled, and that she must be ringed round by enemies, then we shall reject all the proposals of this chapter, and in particular those which may assist Germany to regain a part of its former material prosperity and find a means of livelihood for the industrial population of her towns. But if this view of nations and of their relation to one another is adopted by the democracies of Western Europe, and is financed by the United States, heaven help us all. If we aim deliberately at the impoverishment of Central Europe, vengeance, I dare predict, will not limp. Nothing can then delay for very long that final civil war between the forces of reaction and the despairing convulsions of revolution, before which the horrors of the late German war will fade into nothing and which will destroy whoever is victor, the civilization, and the progress of our generation. 
This sort of language is all throughout the book, crippling German children, depriving a nation of happiness. He writes very emotionally, and the reason for that is that this isn't merely an economic argument for him, but he believes that what the Allies are doing here is, quote, reducing Germany to servitude for a generation. We'll get back to Keynes and whether he was right later, but even in his writing, we can see that despite all the ambitions, the main point on the agenda of the big three is one thing, the German Empire. Here the Allies have to strike a delicate balance, because on top of all the disagreements between themselves, they always have one thing in the back of their minds. What happens if the Germans refuse to sign? This is something Clemenceau constantly harps on, that Germany has to sign the treaty as early as possible while the Allied armies are still mobilized because, as he never gets tired to point out, the Germans cannot be trusted. He also has his main general, Marshal Ferdinand Foch, breathing down his neck, who is constantly pestering him that even he is too soft on the Germans. The reason why Clemenceau is so in a hurry about this is because during the months of the peace conference, the stranglehold of the Allies over Germany is continuing to weaken. The number of Allied troops in France is declining as the Americans are pulling out more and more men. And who knows if the men that are still there are willing to give their life over specific peace terms. Is an American soldier willing to die over the Polish having access to the sea? The British blockade on Germany also continues to crumble as the British public and the crews on the ships enforcing the blockade are increasingly uncomfortable with starving civilians. So Clemenceau feels this enormous pressure because he can't know if the war is truly over. The British worry about the same thing, although it leads some of them to take away an entirely different conclusion. In mainland Britain, voices are getting louder to go easier on Germany to make sure they do sign. One of these voices arguing this will fight the Germans again two decades later as Prime Minister Winston Churchill. After a couple of months of negotiating, drawing borders and hearing delegates, the Allies and the associated governments have drafted up a treaty. Now, usually after a war, it was common parlous to invite all parties and negotiate over the terms, right? That's the way it was done previously. For the peace treaty with Germany, though, that can't be done, really. Because if you alter one thing, you'll soon have to revise more and more stuff. If this country doesn't get this thing, they might not agree to another country getting a province here or a mandate to this colony. So by having this conference and including all these nations and their demands, the Allies have drafted a document that is so inflexible that it's basically impossible to change, at least without holding the same conference all over again. What they decide on is that Germany will be allowed to make suggestions on practical matters, but not the contents of the treaty itself. The Germans, in return, have very different expectations on what input they are allowed to provide. The Paris Peace Conference starts in December 1918, and in April the following year, the Allies request the German delegation join them in Paris. This is something the German government has been preparing for pretty much since they signed the armistice. 
they have an army of experts and advisors mounting up a ton of census data about all these different regions around Germany, drafting up strategies for the upcoming negotiations and preparing arguments. The Germans have been hard at work, and when the time comes to meet the Allies, they are prepared. Their strategic aim here is to secure Germany's position as a great power, or at least keep the window open to Germany becoming one again in the near future. When it comes to ceding territory, the Germans are okay with Alsace-Lorraine holding a referendum on whether it wants to be part of Germany or France in accordance with the idea of self-determination. They're willing to pay reparations for instances of their men breaching the law and to rebuild Belgium and northern France. West Prussia and Danzig are to remain German territory, and for any land to go to Poland, the referendum should necessitate a two-thirds majority to be valid. In terms of economic ties, the Germans want to seek a close relationship with the United States and Great Britain over shared economic interest. If they can get a peace deal that, at least in parts, holds true to Wilson's 14 points, Germany's future is not looking too bleak. The German delegation making its way to Paris in late April 1919 consists of six people supported by a group of experts, statisticians, journalists, and geographers, counting no fewer than 180 people. This shows you that the Germans expect this meeting to be a congress, with the end result being a peace deal. The reason why they bring so many people is to be able to form a committee at any time on any possible issue. The delegation is led by the very first foreign minister of the Weimar Republic, a man with a great name, Count Ulrich von Brockdorf-Ranzau. If you look up pictures of him, he might not have been the best man to send to meet the Allies because his eyes and the way he looks just screams condescension. That he is a minor noble and wears a monocle from time to time uh, might play into that judging look of his as well. Historian Margaret Macmillan describes him as cruel, witty, and capricious, leading to an aura that instantly intimidates most people surrounding him. Even his colleagues in the German delegation will complain about his, quote, obsessive distrust of everyone numerous times. During the war, Brockdorf Ranzau was sort of a fence-sitter, arguing for a compromise between the central powers and the Allies. He vehemently denies that Germany and Austria-Hungary alone are to blame for the war, uh, but does admit and is apologetic towards German war crimes in Belgium. At the end of April, the German delegation and their nearly 200-man large entourage, packed with all their papers and encyclopedias, get on a French train at the border. And speaking about being in a dream-like state, one American observer would note that the German delegation leaving for France seemed excited and almost in an abnormal frame of mind. Similar to the German delegation traveling through France to sign the armistice in November, the French have mapped out a special route for this delegation as well. Rather than taking the fastest route to Paris, the French drive the train past destroyed villages, torn up fields and bombed out houses, going so far as to lower the speed of the train to a walking pace at certain sections to make sure the Germans take a good hard look at what they have done. On their way, 
They drive past German prisoners of war and French soldiers, both shouting the same thing at the train as it passes. Bring us peace soon. After the delegation arrives in Paris, without many words uttered, they are shoved into buses and taken to a very special place. A place so burdened with history and emotions for the French and the Germans that there is really nothing like it anywhere else. It's the old principal residence of the French kings and queens before the French Revolution and the birthplace of the German Empire. When the German delegation steps out of their buses, they realize that they aren't in Paris, but close to the Palace of Versailles. As you might have guessed, this place, the date at which the German delegation is invited, None of this is coincidental. Even the rooms the Germans are put in are the very same hotel rooms the French were staying in when they were negotiating with Otto von Bismarck in 1871. The small library of documents as well as their luggage is dropped off in the hotel courtyard with a short remark that the Germans should carry their stuff themselves. Instead of diplomatic fanfare, as the German delegation exits the bus, they spot a crowd of people booing them and shouting insults. This is the first time that it dawns on the Germans that this whole thing might go different than they had anticipated. The hotel the Germans are staying at is not what one would call luxurious, but sort of dark, gloomy, and a bit run down compared to what diplomats are used to. The hotel complex is surrounded by heavy fortifications and a stockade, which is supposed to serve as protection, the French say. One German even grumbled that they were being treated like, quote, the inhabitants of a Negro village in an exhibition. The Germans are also convinced that all their rooms and their phones are bugged by the French, which is true. So anytime the delegation gets together to discuss something, they blast Wagner at full volume. Using gramophones they have brought with them from Germany specifically for this purpose. Now, the Allies don't want to see the German delegation immediately, so there is some time that they can use to prepare. But of course, as time passes, Brockdorf Ranzau grows more and more anxious, which isn't helped by the fact that the hotel has been instructed to turn down the heat for their German guests. Increasingly, Brockdorf Ranzau fears that the Allies might not want to talk to him at all and merely exchange written notes. The attitude he displays in Versailles will not be to Germany's benefit, to say the least. Before even saying anything, his condescending demeanor signals that the arrogant nobles still run the show in Germany. While waiting at the hotel, Bogdorf Ranzau writes two speeches to deliver to the Allies. One is more conciliatory and forward-looking. The second speech is not. Right up until the last moment, he is unsure which one to read to the Allies and decides that he will pick what feels right in the moment. Finally, after waiting in their hotel for an agonizing week, the Germans are summoned to a meeting at the Trianon Palace Hotel on May 7th, 1919. 
when the German delegation arrives at the hotel, when the German delegation gets there, the room is absolutely packed with people. Journalists from every corner of the earth are here to witness something historic. The table for the German delegation is placed right at the center of the room, resembling, as the Germans would call it, a prisoner's dock. One member of the German delegation, upon seeing what looks like a tribunal, more so than anything else, can't help to think of all the empires that disappeared and weren't in the room anymore. The Austro-Hungarians, the Ottomans, maybe soon the German Empire? Besides the journalists and minor diplomats, at the center of a big table sit George Clemenceau, Woodrow Wilson, Vittorio Orlando, and David Lloyd George, whose hair has gone white throughout the war. For the first time, besides the signing of the armistice, Germany and the Allies stand face to face. One member of the German delegation will later describe the tension in the room as so omnipresent that you could almost reach out and grab it. Before the meeting begins, Georges Clemenceau and Brockdorf Ranzau bow to each other, and after everyone has taken their place, the room falls completely silent. Finally, after waiting for this moment his entire life, and without the slightest inkling of nervousness in his voice, Georges Clemenceau stands up, straightens his back, and says this. The hour of reckoning has struck. You asked us for peace. We are inclined to grant it to you. It's no secret that Clemenceau hates the Germans, and demeanor is crucial at this meeting. So when he holds his opening speech, the way he utters it, drenching with disdain and anger, is more important than his actual words. Not that he holds back in what he says, not at all. Instead of talking about peace, he calls Germany's war of aggression a crime against humanity that the, quote, civilized powers had united against. As the meeting assistant finishes translating Clemenceau's words to the German delegation, Brockdorf Ranzau reaches for his second speech. In speaking about demeanor again, the head of the German delegation will do two things that enrage the French, British, and Americans. First of all, Clemenceau stood up for his address. Brockdorf Ranzau does not. He remains seated, and not only that, but everyone there is aware that Brockdorf Ranzau speaks French perfectly. Despite that, he chooses to respond in German. The smart thing to do for the Germans at this meeting would have been to graciously thank the Allies for the peace proposal and reiterate their commitment to a lasting peace in Europe, maybe even getting the Americans on their side this way. But Brockdorf Ranzau doesn't do the smart thing. He says the following. Gentlemen, we are deeply impressed with the sublime task which has brought us hither to give a durable peace to the world. We are under no illusion as to the extent of our defeat and the degree of our want of power. We know that the might of the German arms is broken. 
We know the power of the hatred which we encounter here, and we have heard the passionate demand that the victors shall make us pay as the vanquished and shall punish those who are worthy of being punished. It is demanded of us that we shall confess ourselves to be the only ones guilty of the war. Such a confession in my mouth would be a lie. We are far from declining any responsibility for this great world war having come to pass and for its having been made in the way in which it was made. The attitude of the former German government at the Hague Peace Conference, its actions and omissions in the tragic 12 days of July, certainly contributed to the disaster. But we energetically deny that Germany and its people, who are convinced that they were waging a war of defense, were alone guilty. He goes on to make the point that, while yes, terrible things are done in war, they happen in the pursuit of victory and essentially out of passion. Contrasting that with the, as he says, hundreds of thousands of Germans that have been killed in cold calculation by the British sea blockade that is still in effect and that the Allies would do good to remember this when talking about crimes against humanity. Brockdorf Ranzau ends his speech by saying that only an independent commission can truly resolve the question of who is at fault for the war and that only the cooperation of all nations can build a durable peace. Now, if you take his speech as a whole, there are points of defiance in there, but a good chunk of it is quite conciliatory and partially accepting of the blame for the war. But the way Brockdorf Ranzau delivers his remarks and that he uses this moment to accuse the other side of wrongdoing is enough to make Clemenceau go red with anger. David Lloyd George would say afterwards that he now understands why the French hate the Germans so much, and even Woodrow Wilson, the man who is by far the most sympathetic to Germany, says, quote, The Germans really are a stupid people. They always do the wrong thing. After Brockdorf Ranzau concludes his speech, the Treaty of Versailles is handed over to the German delegation and the ceremony ends. Suffice to say, the Germans messed up here. Enraging the Allies, especially Wilson, this much was the last thing they should have tried to accomplish. And a lot of later literature will lay most of the blame at the feet of Brockdorf Ranzau. Why did he go this hard at the Allies? Why the sitting down? Why talk in a manner that made it difficult for even the translators to convey what he was saying to others in the room? Even his own government, the German government, told him prior to this meeting, don't harp on who is at fault for the war. Stick to practical things like future borders and such. We have more to gain on that front. And what does Brockdorf Ranzau do? He does the exact opposite and throws away a lot of goodwill among the Americans. There is one detail from this day that might give us an idea of what was going through Brockdorf Ranzau's mind. As the German delegation leaves the meeting, he stops on the stairs of the hotel to light a cigarette. And it just so happens that a close bystander 
notices, as Brockdorf Ranzau lifts the cigarette to his mouth, his lips are quivering, almost as if he is about to burst into tears. So one suggestion a German historian gives is that instead of this being a calculated move by him, when he sat there like a schoolboy ordered into a principal's office, he merely caved under the pressure. The nerves got the better of him, and what he delivered was an expression of his emotions. After finishing his cigarette, him and the German delegation rush back to their cold hotel rooms and pour over the treaty. Parts of it are sectioned off and given to different teams of translators because the treaty is in French. And as they dig through the document, it slowly begins to dawn on them what kind of peace Germany is in for. The delegates honestly cannot believe their eyes. When Brockdorf Ranzau calls Berlin, he is so agitated that the French agents listening in on him can't even make out what he is saying. He rants, This fat volume was quite unnecessary. They could have expressed this whole thing more simply in one clause. Le Allemagne renonce à son existence. Germany renounces its existence. Here is how an American observer describes the mood right before the treaty is about to be published in Germany. The Germans have little left but hope. But having only that, I think they have clung to it. The hope that the Americans would do something. The hope that the final terms would not be so severe as the armistice indicated and so on. Subconsciously, I think the Germans have been more optimistic than they realized. When they see the terms in cold print, there will be intense bitterness, hate and desperation. After the delegation cables the treaty to Berlin, piece by piece, Friedrich Ebert, reigning Reich's president, asked the ministers in the government, in spite of all race tempers, to make a sober assessment of what this treaty means. In the following cabinet meeting, the ministers tell Ebert that the conditions of the treaty have far surpassed their worst expectations, that they are unbearable not just financially but psychologically, that these conditions territorially and economically gag the country and can never be the basis of any lasting peace. The following day, the government gives an official statement to the press directly saying that what this treaty means is the, quote, total economic annihilation of Germany. It's not long until more details of the treaty are published in the German press, and this elicits a response among the public that is hard to even convey. The millions of Germans flocking to the newsstands feverishly reading through the papers as the terms are made public, react with sheer horror. Headlines are calling it Germany's mutilation and the Diktatfrieden or dictated peace. The German newspaper Frankfurter Zeitung on May 9th calls it the height of an insane conquering materialism and that if it's implemented, it is time to despair at the future of humanity. There are a lot of great sources to pull from to show you how German society felt on May 8th, 1919. But I found one text in particular that sums it up perfectly, in my opinion. This is from a Berlin-based entrepreneur who 
writes in his diary after hearing about the treaty. Today is the blackest day of the war, the peace conditions of Versailles. All desire to live is gone, the heart stops. The vervictus in the cruelest, most brutal form proclaimed by the victorious enemies. It still seems inconceivable that such a peace could become reality. Impossible. But what then? Where are the pretty speeches of humanity and justice? Where are the Wilson points after the recognition of which the truce was signed? Was it all a scam? Shall all justice, all faith fade? This cannot be the end. No, this cannot be the end of a militarily undefeated state. This is the last straw. But what could be our salvation? What effect would a rejection have? New revolution here or with the others? No ray of light anywhere, only black clouds. Why even live? As you can see in this diary entry, not only do the Germans believe that they hadn't really lost the war, which makes the terms of the treaty even more outrageous to them, they feel betrayed, betrayed by Wilson above all. It will take a few days for the entire treaty to be translated and understood, so over the next month you have new headlines every day on what the Allies want to impose on Germany. Under the treaty, Germany will lose a tenth of its population, meaning when the treaty officially goes into effect, 6.5 million Germans are located inside a different country. The way the Allies drew the borders of Czechoslovakia, there will be more Germans living there than Slovaks. This goes hand in hand with Germany losing a seventh of its European territory and all of its colonies. In the West, Germany gives Alsace-Lorraine back to France. And in addition to that, the French had their eyes set on the resource-rich area of the Saarland. Now, it won't be annexed by France, but the resource extraction within the area, which is mostly coal, is given to France for 15 years. Losing Alsace-Lorraine didn't really shock anyone in Germany. That was very much expected. But the more controversial loss of territory is taking place in the east. Here, Poland returns to the world stage as an independent nation. This means Germany loses the province of Posen, nearly all of Western Prussia and parts of Upper Silesia. The port city of Danzig, which is overwhelmingly German, becomes a so-called free city under the mandate of the newly created League of Nations. One thing Wilson had promised in his famous 14 points was that the newly created Poland would have, quote, access to the sea. To make that happen, East Prussia gets separated from the rest of Germany, creating a corridor for Poland inhabited by 1.1 million Germans in 1919. In some of the contested territories, the Allies plan to hold referendums so that the people can decide to which nation they want to belong. Although in some cases, the people will vote to become part of one nation, in the example of Upper Silesia, that was Germany, still a French court will award significant chunks of it to Poland. Throughout the interwar years, Germans will describe the East as their bleeding border. Further, Germany is to hand over its entire high seas fleet and is not allowed to have one in the future. Same goes for its air force. 
The military is to be reduced to an army of 100,000 men. And Germany is not allowed to station any of these soldiers in certain areas like the Rhineland as a safety guarantee. Things like heavy machinery, parts of the German merchant fleet, livestock, train carts, etc. are supposed to be handed over as reparations for France and Belgium, in addition to reparations paid in gold. How much exactly remains to be determined at a later date? Now this actually makes a lot of sense because a commission that can take into account Germany's financial capabilities will do a much better job at determining the realistic amount of reparations. But for the Germans, this comes off as the Allies making them sign a blank check. How can we agree to pay reparations if we don't even know how much you're asking for? It severely limits Germany's ability to conduct an independent trade policy down to specific industries. For instance, Attachment 6 of the treaty mandates that the German chemical industry has to sell half its stock and 25% of its production for the next five years at dumping prices to the Allies. Apart from all that, what most Germans regard as exceptionally criminal and humiliating, frankly, is Article 231 of the Treaty of Versailles. Here's what it says. The Allied and Associated Governments affirm and Germany accepts the responsibility of Germany and her allies for causing all the loss and damage to which the Allied and Associated Governments and their nationals have been subjected as a consequence of the war imposed upon them by the aggression of Germany and her allies. Now, why is this in the treaty? Well, if you're going to ask for reparations, you should establish a basis on what you want to be reimbursed for. So this article exists to provide a legal framework for other things in the treaty. And this is something you see people point to a lot when this article is mentioned, that it's merely a legal formality. While that might be true in intent, the Germans read this as an unnecessary moral condemnation, and it really takes a swing at their sense of honor. In addition to that, the words the Allies chose here are very vague, like this consequences of the war include that Germany pays for the allowance of every single widow and orphan caused by the war. Starting on May 8th, Germany is swept by a wave of protests against the treaty. Hundreds of thousands shouting, down with the dictated peace. A lot of great posters come out of this, showcasing the anger at this peace. And one thing you have to understand is that it's not just the German right that is outraged at this. From proto-fascist to communist revolutionary, close to every person in German society sees this as a grave injustice. One poster shows Germany as Prometheus chained to a big rock while a French vulture eats his liver. Another one shows Wilson, Clemenceau and Lloyd George leading a man towards a guillotine with the caption reading... You too have the right to self-determination. Do you want us to empty your pockets before or after you're dead? A poster that I really like comes from a German woman's association showing Germany caught up in a giant spider web with the text below reading, How can we escape this murderous net? Ultimately, the decision on what to do now lies with the government. In the eyes of the world, rest upon one man especially. 
the second in command of the Social Democrats, the man who declared the Republic from the window of the Reichstag and who now serves as the German Chancellor, Philipp Scheidemann. The Social Democrats are typically more conciliatory towards the Allies and their desire for Germany to take its place among the democracies of the world is genuine. So everyone is trying to anticipate the reaction by the head of the government, Philipp Scheidemann. On the 12th of May 1919, the German parliament is more reminiscent of a racetrack than a government institution. Delegates are screaming at each other and holding passionate speeches about honor and betrayal and how the Allies would do good to remember that according to, quote, our faith, death is followed by resurrection. Eventually, the hall quiets down as the man the country is looking towards for guidance takes center stage. Looking like he hasn't slept for a week straight, he gets ready to hold a speech that, no matter what he says, will go down in the history books. A speech that will be translated and published in newspapers all throughout the world immediately. Philip Scheidemann, with his hair and beard white as snow in a black suit, steps up to the podium, clears his throat, and says this. Ladies and gentlemen, the German National Assembly has gathered today to take a position at this turning point in the existence of our people on what our enemies call peace terms. Scheidemann then references one of the posters that has been distributed in Berlin that shows the plight of German POWs in labor camps and says, Sad, hopeless faces behind prison bars. That is the correct cover picture for this so-called peace treaty. That is the true portrayal of Germany's future. 60 million behind barbed wire and prison bars. 60 million in forced labor for whom the enemies turn their own country into a prison camp. They, the Allies, have not forgotten anything and have apparently only learned what annihilation and destruction mean. He goes on for a little bit and then outright says that for his government, the Treaty of Versailles is unacceptable. If we were to sign this treaty, it would not be Germany's corpse alone lying on the battlefield of Versailles. Next to it would lie the corpses of the right to self-determination, the independence of free nations, the belief in all the beautiful ideals under whose banner the Entente pretended to wage war. We are one flesh and one blood, and whoever tries to separate us cuts with a murderous knife into the living body of the German people. Now, there are a lot of things in this speech that we could talk about, but one sentence in particular will become famous down the line, and reading it now, it gives me goosebumps. Close to the end of his speech, Philipp Scheidemann asks the question, quote, Which hand would not wither that binds itself and us in these chains? As Scheidemann finishes his speech, wipes the sweat of his brow, and takes a deep breath, the German parliament erupts in unanimous applause. And not just that, but this is reportedly the first speech in this democratic parliament ever to receive a minutes-long standing ovation from everyone. 
His historic speech is one of the milder ones on that day, though. Other elected officials don't shy away from chastising the Allied powers directly instead of just saying, our enemies. How dare Britain talk of self-determination while they exploit millions in India, Ireland, and Africa? Who is Belgium to talk about crimes against humanity given their barbarism in the Congo? Woodrow Wilson is getting the worst of it. Numerous elected officials publicly call him a swindler and a con man who presented himself as a friend, all while keeping his true motives hidden. What makes him the focus of the Germans' ire is that they feel stabbed in the back by him. If you are wronged by an enemy, you might not like it, but it's somewhat expected. But if someone you consider a friend does the exact same thing, it's going to sting much more. And this is not just in the heat of the moment. When Woodrow Wilson dies in 1924, the German embassy in Washington will be the only one to not lower their flags to half-mast. That is how deep their bitterness runs, all the way into the grave. Apart from Parliament, the entire country from Kiel to Munich, from Aachen to Königsberg, is ablaze with rage at the Allies or at their own government for even signing the armistice in the first place. Others outside of Germany even share this feeling of betrayal in a way. Here's how a Dutch newspaper called Algemeen Handelsblatt reports on the treaty. The peace conditions opposed upon Germany are so hard, so humiliating, that even those who have the smallest expectations of a peace of justice are bound to be deeply disappointed. Our opinion on the lust of power and conquest of Germany is well known, but a condemnation of wartime actions must not amount to a lasting condemnation of a people. The question is not whether the Germans have been led by an intellectual group to their destruction or whether they are accomplices in the misdeeds of their leaders. The question is whether it is in the interest of mankind, whether there is any sense in punishing a people in such a way as the Entente governments wish to chastise Germany. The Entente evidently desires the complete annihilation of Germany. This peace offered to Germany may differ in form from the one imposed upon conquered nations by the old Romans, but certainly not in essence. This peace is a mockery of President Wilson's principles. Trusting to these, Germany accepted peace. That confidence has been betrayed in such a manner that we regard the present happenings as a deep humiliation, not only to all governments and nations concerned in this peace offer, but all humanity. The opinion piece closes with the sentence, Fettered and enslaved, Germany will always remain a menace to Europe. Future British Prime Minister Ramsay MacDonald, upon seeing the content of the treaty, calls it an act of insanity without parallel in human history. Herbert Hoover, who will go on to become President of the United States, uh, is in Paris as well. On May 7th, the day the treaty was handed over to the Germans, his assistant wakes him up at four in the morning because a copy of the final treaty has arrived. Upon reading the copy, 
Hoover gets, as he puts it, greatly distressed. More and more, he is convinced that a contract that is, quote, shot through with hatred and vindictiveness can never be the basis of any lasting peace in Europe. At roughly 8 a.m. that day, Hoover takes a walk through Paris to clear his mind, and he stumbles upon John Maynard Keynes and a man called Jan Smuts, who is part of the British delegation and future prime minister of South Africa. Their eyes meet, and Hoover would later write that, if there were ever cases of telepathy, this was one of them. Jan Smuts will also go down as one of the harshest critics of the treaty. About it, he says, if the Germans are prepared to swallow this treaty, I still consider its provisions such as to make future peace and goodwill in Europe unlikely. The fires will be kept burning, and the pot be kept boiling, until it again boils over. In a letter to Woodrow Wilson, he goes as far as to equate the Treaty of Versailles with Germany's invasion of Belgium. Quote, This war began with a breach of a solemn international undertaking, and it has been one of our most important war aims to vindicate international law and the sanctity of international engagements. If the Allies end the war by following the example of Germany at the beginning and also confront the world with a scrap of paper, the discredit on us will be so great that I shudder to think of its ultimate effect on public opinion. But of course, all of this is nothing to what is going on in Germany right now. More and more, the treaty gets described as a moral breach of the armistice by the Allies. In the east of Germany, those dead set on remaining part of the country get into contact with the Bolsheviks in Russia to beat the bush on an informal alliance against the emerging Polish state. In a way, this moment in 1919 resembles a similar moment in August 1914, when the entire country, no matter your political or religious affiliation, came together under one banner to, in their mind, defend the fatherland. Now, they unite to prevent, as one newspaper puts it, Germany getting its limbs ripped off by the Allies. Still, as unfair as they think this treaty is, Germany needs an actual game plan here. On the day that Scheidemann and others hold speeches in Parliament about 60 million behind prison bars and how death is followed by resurrection, there is one lonesome delegate, only one person, that gives word to what everyone has in the back of their minds. At the end of the day, the question is, what do you suppose we do about this? What do you suppose to do against the enslavement of the German population? Because every hour, every minute, every second that is spent ranting and raving about the traitor Wilson and whatnot, the Allied ultimatum is ticking down. At this point, Germany already has the gun placed squarely on its forehead, and the Allies have made it clear that they will pull the trigger if Germany doesn't sign. Clemenceau said there won't be any negotiations, so it seems like Germany either signs or the Great War continues. The answer to this question, on whether to sign or not to sign, lies with the government. But while Germany is still in the middle of processing the shock, one man tries to keep cool in all of this. 
true to his character, instead of acting out of emotions or gut instinct, Germany's president, Friedrich Ebert, tries to evaluate his options. He is certain that the Allies will renew hostilities if Germany doesn't sign. The question is, if that happens, can Germany defend itself? Can we, in a last push, avert this catastrophe and somehow force the Allies to the negotiating table. So Ebert contacts the military and instructs them to go through every possible scenario for an Allied invasion. One man in the German government that is dead set on not signing by now is Count Brockdorf Ranzau, who still sits in his moody hotel room, slowly getting eaten up by his anger, waiting for the next meeting with the Allies. For their next meeting, he makes the decision to grab the bull by its horns and work on getting public opinion on his side to hopefully pressure the Allies that way, telling them directly to their faces that this is not a just peace, but imperialism of the highest order. The government in Berlin directly tells him, don't. This is way too confrontational. Just pretend that all we want is to find practical solutions. So instead of coming from a place of anger, arguing that this clause or that amount of reparations is an insult to honor or whatnot, come at it from a place of cooperation. Take the route of showing the Allies that we cannot fulfill their demands and that if they want us to be able to pay reparations, our economy has to remain intact. This might even get the British and Americans to take Germany's side on some things. That's the only way we can get to any kind of negotiation. Keep your anger at bay. Don't accuse them. Don't talk about who's at fault for the war. This is basically what the government tells the German delegation. At first, the delegation under Brockdorf Ranzau's leadership adheres to this instruction, at least a little bit. On May 9th, two days after receiving the treaty, the delegation submits its official response to the Allies. Quote, The treaty draft contains demands that no people can bear. Further, many things are, in the opinion of our experts, unaccomplishable. The German peace delegation will provide detailed evidence and will continue to send its comments and material to the Allied and associated governments. Now, this short text might not seem like a statement of defiance, but you can clearly see Brockdorf Ranzau's bitterness seeping through here, saying that some demands are unbearable, not just unfulfillable, unbearable. Again, framing this as an insult to his country. The response to this, issued by Clemenceau, is short and clinical. He reminds the Germans that the terms of the treaty are merely an extension of what Germany has already accepted when they signed the armistice, and that they don't have to bother collecting material on sections of the treaty they deem unaccomplishable, since their only input is supposed to be suggestions of a practical nature. When Brockdorf Ranzau receives this answer by Clemenceau, all tactical reluctance is off the table. In a meeting discussing Clemenceau's answer, the delegation sets out to shower the Allies with memorandums pointing at every single inconsistency or perceived injustice. 
On May 13th, Brockdorf Ranzau sends a memorandum regarding the topic his government has explicitly told him not to focus on, namely who is at fault for the war. He says that regarding the so-called war guilt clause, Germany has by no means agreed to the assertion of being the sole perpetrator that kicked off the war. From their perspective, the true perpetrator is Russia, because according to them, the Tsar already mobilized while Germany was still engaged in good faith diplomacy. Again, Clemenceau rejects any of this wholesale and pulls an interesting little trick on the German delegation by pointing to one of the memorandums sent between the US and Germany, where according to him, Germany did accept that they are the bad guys here. Some of you might remember this from an earlier episode. Prior to the signing of the armistice, the Germans tried to get the Allies to agree to a peace based off of Wilson's 14 points. This was in November 1918. Here is the text that Germany ultimately agreed to so they could get an armistice. Quote, The Allied governments feel that no doubt ought to be allowed to exist as to what this provision implies. By it, they understand that compensation will be made by Germany for all damages done to the civilian population of the Allies and their property by the aggression of Germany by land, by sea, and from the air. Now this might seem pretty clear-cut, but when Clemenceau brings this up, the German delegation is like, whoa, 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 hold on now. Because the Germans read the word aggression, or decided to read it as direct aggression, meaning they believed that they were agreeing to pay reparations for the damages directly caused by Germany by land, sea, and from the air. Clemenceau and the Allies in return say, no, aggression here means the war in its entirety. You agree to pay reparations for the entire conflict. In return, the German delegation requests to see the report by the Allied War Guild Commission, and Clemenceau shoots that down as well, saying the report is an internal document and that they have no right to know what's in it. Ultimately, this uh, memorandum war, as historian Gerd Kromeich calls it, only achieves that both sides get more and more angry with one another. The Germans feel like they are getting shot down at every turn and are getting strong-armed into signing a treaty that no nation in the world could sign in good conscience, while the Allies get more and more angry because Brockdorf Ranzau keeps harping back to central points of the treaty in this appalled and accusatory tone. And funnily enough, this only reinforces the Allies' commitment to making Germany accept the moral dimension of the treaty, that they are responsible for all of this. At the end of May, the German delegation sends another lengthy memorandum arguing that there is nothing in Wilson's 14 points that suggests Germany would have to accept the sole guilt for the war, and again asks to see the report by the Allied War Guild Commission. It says a lot about the state of the relationship between the Allies and the German delegation at that point that the Germans won't even receive an answer to their last memorandum. Future historians and diplomats will lay a lot of criticism 
at the feet of Brockdorf Ranzau for making the question of war guilt so prominent in the back and forth between Germany and the Allies. But one thing you have to remember is that this is really the heart of what Germany felt was unacceptable about this treaty. Although a German government would have never said this publicly, parts of the treaty weren't as unacceptable to them as they made it seem. They went into this fully expecting to lose some territory in the east and Alsace-Lorraine. Parts of the reparations seemed quite doable, actually, and compared to how some other countries were being treated by the Allies, the deal Germany got really wasn't that bad. But the accusation that Germany had essentially planned to start this hugely destructive war and conducted it in an inhumane manner, that was too much to bear. Now in 1919 there are some Germans who argue that we just have to swallow this part of the treaty and instead focus on the things that we have a chance of changing. The most prominent one making this case is Matthias Erzberger, the man who signed the armistice for Germany in November. Him and Brockdorf Ranzau will almost get in a fist fight over this when the two meet in late May. By early June, Clemenceau is done negotiating and responding to Germany's complaints. Even Wilson has lost all sympathy for the Germans and says that we need to wrap this up now. The last person that is somewhat susceptible to Germany's pleas is David Lloyd George, the Prime Minister of Britain. Because again, it's in Britain's economic interest for Germany to have a functioning economy and demand for British products. Lloyd George, during these talks among the Allies, even goes as far as to threaten to not have Britain join an invasion of Germany if they reject the treaty. There is some back and forth among the Allies with the Americans mediating between the French and the British, and while ultimately the German delegation has some success in altering parts of the treaty in minor ways, the central insult to the German honor Article 231 remains unchanged. Even the Americans and the British fully reject any further changes to the treaty now, and the ball lies squarely in Germany's court, with the only question remaining, do you sign or do you not sign? The answer of the German delegation is pretty straightforward. While they are on the train back to Germany, they sum up their position with the following statement. We are of the conviction that once the treaty is signed, we won't be able to get away from it. The consequences of not signing are uncertain. All possibilities remain open. The consequences of signing, however, are certain. The annihilation of the German economy and thereby the annihilation of the German people. So their attitude is, whatever happens, nothing can be worse than what happens if we sign this. Brockdorf Ranzau makes this case in front of the German government on June 19th, arguing that not only will us signing this treaty earn us nothing but contempt abroad over our weakness, but that Germany must call the bluff of the Allies. If they want to invade, let's see them do it. Let's see them motivate their populaces to fight and die so that Denmark can have this province, or Poland gets a few coal mines. And not just that, but let's see them make the case for invading a country that wants peace. In Brockdorf Ranzow's mind, there is no doubt that when push comes to shove, 
the unity among the allies will crumble and within a few months a new negotiation can take place. During this speech, Brockdorf Ranzau shows that he really hasn't learned anything from his failings in Paris. He's just as arrogant, saying that he is the only one that has the authority to speak confidently on these matters. It's fitting that his counterpart in front of the German government is our old friend, the soft-spoken Catholic choir boy, Matthias Erzberger. While Brockdorf Ranzau paints an image of the Allies breaking apart if Germany doesn't sign the treaty, Erzberger predicts the very dissolution of the country. The Allied invasion would unleash a wave of sexual assaults on German women by troops from French Africa. He says the French are already working on separate treaties with the states in southern Germany and that the only way an Allied invasion could end is with the disintegration of the German Empire. What they don't know is that, in a way, they are both right. The battle plan, in case Germany rejects the treaty, drawn up by Marshal Ferdinand Foch, consists of driving 40 infantry divisions westward towards Weimar, eventually capturing Berlin and separating Bavaria from the rest of the country. But as time passes, even Foch begins to doubt his own plan. By mid-June, he believes 40 divisions are not nearly enough, and when he presents the Big Four with an alternative plan, offering the German southern states milder peace in return for neutrality, Wilson and Lloyd George are so outraged that Foch almost gets fired. Increasingly so, the Allies don't have a plan for enforcing the treaty. While the French are still determined to take the fight to the very end, the voices that favor honest new negotiations are getting louder in the UK and the US. France also sees violent labor unrest at the time, so for the victors of the Great War, the clock is ticking down too. The Germans, of course, have no way of knowing this, so if they decide not to sign, they're playing for extraordinary high stakes. One man in Germany who has more sway than others in this debate is the guy we know as the Bloodhound, Defense Minister Gustav Noske. We know him as this ruthless, cold-calculating guy, and it's exactly that attitude that puts him in the camp of those arguing in favor of signing the treaty. He looks at this more detached than a Scheidemann, and when the parliament turns to him, to assess the military options, he says that this is out of the question. Germany has made too many concessions in the armistice. We can't put up a military resistance if the Allies decide to invade. And with Noske taking this position, the attitude in Parliament begins to shift, where there is a slight majority that still regards the treaty as criminal and an insult to honor, but we don't really have a choice here. We have to sign. As the deadline of the Allies draws closer, Scheidemann and his camp see the writings on the wall, and on June 20th, after days of debate, the German Chancellor Philipp Scheidemann publicly resigns from his position. He is joined by others in his cabinet, like his foreign minister, Brockdorf Ranzau, meaning the government collapses over the question of whether to sign or not. As those resigning put it, there is no way that they could live 
with signing this dictated piece. Gustav Noske's comment on this sums up how the rest of the government feels about this pretty well. He says that Scheidemann and those in his cabinet are, quote, heroes, but that Germany doesn't need any more heroes right now. And here is where one of the many cracks that define the Weimar body politique starts to appear. Because you would imagine that the insult that Versailles represents for all Germans would act as a unifier, but after the initial shock wears off, it does the exact opposite. For the right wing, taking their anger out on the Allies is not really doable, so instead they channel their hatred towards what will be called the appeasers. That is anyone seemingly willing to fulfill the obligations put on Germany in the treaty. And for a lot of German politicians, the label of appeaser will be an enormous obstacle. Oh, you want to raise taxes? You're an appeaser. You just want to give our money to the allies. You want to limit the power of the military or private gun ownership? You're an appeaser that wants Germany defenseless. One of the first to draw this line explicitly is Brockdorf Ranzau. Feeling deeply aggrieved after losing the argument against Erzberger, he immediately gives an interview to a Berlin newspaper in which he says, quote, I was close to my goal, but that criminal Erzberger has ruined everything. Here again, you see this sense of betrayal, of being stabbed in the back. Erzberger will be one of these so-called appeasers that gets demonized relentlessly and indeed will be assassinated later on by a right-wing extremist while on vacation with his family. Philipp Scheidemann, the former German chancellor, despite resigning over the treaty, will not be spared the hatred of the right-wing either and in 1922 barely survives an acid attack. As Germany's governing coalition is thrown into crisis by this, something unfolds in Scotland, of all places, that only reaffirms the Allies in their perception of Germany as this stubborn, unreliable entity. Far away from Germany, in the very northeast of Scotland, there lies a British naval base in a bay surrounded by islands. This place is called Scapa Flow, and for the last seven months, this bay has been the home of the German Imperial High Seas Fleet. When Germany signed the armistice, the government agreed to have the High Seas Fleet taken hostage, essentially. These ships are still manned by German crews and led by a German admiral, and these guys keep a very close eye on what is in the Treaty of Versailles. What you have to understand about these Navy guys, and the admirals especially, is that they have a real connection to the ships they serve on. In a way, it's almost an extension of themselves and their sense of honor, which is only emboldened by the fact that this is not a loose collection of ships. This is a huge fleet, containing cruisers, battleships, destroyers, mounting up to over 70 vessels in total. And when the men on these ships get the news on what the Allies have in store for their beloved vessels, they are mortified. Article 148 of the Treaty of Versailles reads, 
From the date of the coming into force of the present treaty, all the German surface warships which are not in German ports cease to belong to Germany, who renounces all rights over them. Vessels which, in compliance with the armistice of November 11, 1918, are now interned in the ports of the Allied and Associated Powers, are declared to be finally surrendered. Vessels which are now interned in neutral ports will be their surrender to the governments of the principal Allied and Associated Powers. The German government must address a notification to that effect to the neutral powers on the coming into force of the present treaty. In other words, the entire German high seas fleet will be handed over and incorporated into the British fleet, the French fleet, and whoever else secures themselves a piece of the pie. This is something the German admiral in charge of the high seas fleet cannot endure. He won't see his fleet repainted and repurposed to sail in the name of a British king. Some members of the British Navy are aware of this because they would probably feel the same way, right? So even before the treaty is published, there are some rumblings around Scapa Flow that the Germans might try something. The Navy leadership kind of brushes it off, citing no reliable intelligence on the attitude among the German crews and Scapa Flow. At the same time, the Germans manning the ships have no idea about how the negotiations are going between Germany and the Allies. There is still a slither of hope that they might not be forced to hand their ships over after all. The deadline given to the German government runs out officially on June 21st, 1919. And when that day comes, for the sailors, it looks like no matter the outcome, they can only lose. If Germany signs, they have to hand over the fleet. If Germany doesn't sign, they will most likely be captured under the threat of death. There is a third option, though. It's dangerous and requires quite a bit of planning, coordination and secrecy. The plan to execute this operation has been forged in secret by the German admiral in charge. And he came up with this plan even before he knew what was in the Treaty of Versailles. Days before he plans to execute this scheme, he sends letters to all of the officers aboard the fleet. Funnily enough, those letters are collected and delivered by the British, but nobody bothers to read them. June 21st is not just the day the Allied deadline runs out, although in the last minute they extend it for a few days. Coincidentally, it is also the day the British fleet near Scapa Flow leaves for a training exercise. When the German admiral commanding the fleet sees this, he knows it's now or never. The first thing you see, looking at this enormous amount of ships across the bay, is flags going up one after the other. First the flagship with the other ones following. Flags that they are not allowed to raise. The British have explicitly forbidden this. In their final hours, they display the flag of the old empire, the flag reserved for time of war. At 10.30 a.m., the flagship kicks off the operation by signaling the words, paragraph 11, confirm. In a matter of minutes, 
the German sailors rip open every single side scuttle, every torpedo tunnel, and start smashing pipes. Watertight doors are opened and the cold water comes rushing through these ships. Some of the few witnesses to this are a bunch of boys who are on a school trip to Scapaflow. Here's how one of them describes what is going on. Suddenly and without warning, these huge ships started listing, some diving headlong, their sterns rising and pointing skyward. The muffled ripping of the anchor chains only increased the noise while these giant bodies sank, accompanied by a horrific sucking and clicking noise. The German admiral and his men have decided to sink the entire high seas fleet, sending them to the bottom of the ocean rather than seeing them in the hands of the British. Now, there are some British soldiers present, but it's only a few, and when they see these enormous ships starting to list one after the other, they have no clue what is going on. After the German sailors are done, and most of the ships are beyond saving, they get on tiny rowing boats to get to safety. It is not exactly clear why what happened next went down the way it did. I'm sure sheer panic and confusion plays a big role, but when the British and their trawlers see these boats full of fleeing Germans, one officer gives the order to open fire. The British men position their machine guns and blast at the unarmed sailors trying to get to safety, killing nine and wounding over a dozen men. When the British fleet gets back, over 50 ships have been scuttled by their own men. 15 of the 16 capital ships, 5 of the 8 cruisers, and 32 of the 50 destroyers, now at the bottom of the ocean, absolutely worthless. The British admiral present that day is a man called Fremantle, who, upon entering Scapa Flow, has the German admiral and some of his men brought aboard his ship, the HMS Revenge. Through an interpreter, he says that they have dishonored themselves and broken the armistice, while the Germans just kind of shrug it off. I have a feeling, though, that the talking to he gave them wasn't too harsh, given that Fremantle would later remark in private, I could not resist feeling some sympathy for von Reuter, that's the German admiral, who had preserved his dignity when placed against his will in a highly unpleasant and invidious position. The Allies in Paris don't feel that way. For them, this is a confirmation of Germany's bad faith in these not negotiations, and they are quick to demand other German ships as a reimbursement for those now at the bottom of the ocean. Although I should say, when they hear of the events at Scapa Flow, behind closed doors, there's also a sense of relief. Because at least they can stop arguing about who gets what piece of the German fleet when the treaty goes into effect. While the German navy plans and executes its last act of defiance, the other side of Germany's military, the army, is also gaming out possible scenarios. We haven't really touched on the former German deep state since the revolution. Before that, the military had shifted from being this incredibly powerful institution within German society that wasn't accountable to anyone 
to just being the state, essentially. But since the revolution, they've been kind of quiet, except for when it came to crushing communists. The reason for this is that they are waiting for this to fall into place and then see what is possible. Officially, they have made a deal with Friedrich Ebert, the new president of Germany, trading their loyalty for a pledge that they won't be affected as much by any pushes for reform. This alliance is very thickle, though, and nothing shows this more than a multi-day meeting taking place in Berlin. On the day that Chancellor Scheidemann resigns, all the old military men get together officially to advise the government on their military options, as Friedrich Ebert had requested. Because at this point, it is not unrealistic that the world war starts anew. The government collapsing, the news of the high seas fleet scuttling itself, makes the clouds over Germany seem even darker. There is a real sense of apocalypse in the air. But what the war continuing would look like seems hazy and hinges on a number of open questions. If Germany doesn't sign the treaty and France launches an attack, will the British and Americans join in? If they do, what are our chances of defense? What are our chances if they don't? What if the Polish simultaneously attack us from the east? That last one being almost certain if there is no peace treaty in the near future. At this meeting, the government is represented by Gustav Noske, and the concept the military leadership keeps coming back to is the levy en masse, French for mass levy, and it describes the idea of mass conscripting every able-bodied man to defend the fatherland. The idea behind this is that an invasion of Germany, in theory, would lead to a reinvigoration of national fervor, creating a united national resistance. Communists would lock arms with monarchists, making the French pay dearly for every centimeter of German soil. The military leadership also deems it likely that the Americans, and maybe even British, would not renew hostilities, because they're already in the process of demobilizing. So in the best-case scenario for Germany, it would be them versus France and probably Poland. Now, Poland at this stage is not that much to worry about. And for France, the officers hope that a prolonged, brutal, drawn-out engagement would erode the will to fight among French society, leading to new peace negotiations and a better deal. Noske is not wholly convinced by this. Remember that not even a year ago, the army was selling a similar vision for its last spring offensive. We're going to punch holes into the enemy lines and roll up the front. But of course, in the end, it was all empty promises. So why would now be any different? This plan is also not without risk, because if Germany takes this chance and fails, it's most certainly the end. The end for Germany and the end for everyone in power currently. The French will get their way and smash the nation into a hundred weak, disunited pieces. Now, there is another scenario the military higher-ups are spending a lot of time thinking about. And as soon as Gustav Noske leaves the conference, 
their attention turns towards this secret plan. At this point, they know that a new government will likely sign the Treaty of Versailles because they don't have any other choice. The military, as this powerful institution, has a choice, though. As of right now, there is a rift between the German states when it comes to signing the treaty. The states in the West, that would be the first to fight off an Allied invasion, lean towards signing it, while the Eastern states, where the military power centers lie, lean towards not signing. In the South, there are also efforts underway for Bavaria to split off of the rest of the country and make a separate peace with the Allies. Conditions the military deems ripe for exploiting to their own benefit. Their plan is to use this to their advantage, and when the government signs the treaty, the army will concentrate in Prussia, fighting a three-front war. Not only would this mean picking up arms against the Allies and the Polish, but also against those loyal to the government. Some generals present have an attitude that is very reminiscent of the German navy at the end of the war. They would rather go down fighting than suffer the indignity of the Treaty of Versailles. It's better to burn out than to fade away. Ultimately, the decision on whether to prepare and execute this plan lies with one man. We've talked about him before. He is the military leader that is characterized by a constant, somewhat sad look on his face. Drooping eyelids, slumped shoulders, just always seeming kind of downtrodden, which is not a huge shock considering his job is head of the army that had just lost the Great War. His name is Wilhelm Gröner. What I kind of like about him is that he is a straight shooter. You might remember him talking to the Kaiser when the German Revolution unfolded and telling the Kaiser to his face that the army doesn't stand behind him anymore. Politically speaking, he is more of a realist than some of his colleagues. While some generals might have shied away from making a deal with filthy socialists, he understood that the Republic was a political reality that they had to accustom to. When it comes to the triple front war scenario the generals are working on, he again comes back to this notion of political reality. He is unblinded by this heroic fantasy of going out with honor and asks the question of who they think will fight for this. Not that Gröner has any sense of higher allegiance to the Republic, but the stab-in-the-back myth has become an absolute truism in the military by this point. This idea that the military fought on bravely in the war, but that the civilians and especially socialists and Jews had caused defeat by organizing strikes and corroding Germany's fighting spirit. So why would it be any different now? In other words, Gröner has zero faith in the German public, and if you don't have the public on your side, the levy en masse doesn't work. Gröner responding to these appeals to honor and duty by his colleagues says, All the pretty speeches amount to foolishness, and that the idea of renewing hostilities, given the current state of the army, is, quote, insanity. While the army goes over their treasonous plans, Time is running low for Germany's civilian leadership. The Scheidemann cabinet is out and the apocalyptic mood in the country is ratcheting up even further. 
On June 23rd, a group of students seizes the French flags that Germany captured in 1871. Flags that the Treaty of Versailles demands to be returned to France. They pile them up in front of a statue of Frederick the Great, pour gasoline over the pile and light them on fire while singing Deutschland über alles. Ferdinand Foch, who at this point has had a falling out with Clemenceau over the treaty being too weak on the Germans, hears this and writes this to his wife. They are mocking us. All of Europe is a complete mess. Such is the work of Clemenceau. Clemenceau, for his part, has given notice to the Germans that they will not receive another deadline extension. Under this immense time pressure, a new government comes together that is now faced with the choice of giving in or calling the Allied bluff and prepare for a military showdown. The new German Chancellor is a man named Gustav Bauer, who had been Labour Minister until now, and in his first address to the National Assembly, he shows which side he is on, stating that his government does not seek ambition or power, but that, quote, it is our damn duty to save what can be saved. The idea now is that Germany agrees to sign the treaty, but that so-called questions of honor should be bracketed out, so to say, like the war guilt clause, for instance. So the parliament votes on the treaty, urging the Allies to reconsider the questions of honor. Clemenceau happens to be informed of the Germans' willingness to sign in the scuttling of the German fleet at Scapa Flow at the same time, so to no one's surprise, he shoots down any changes to the treaty again. The Germans have to sign the treaty as is or face the consequences. And at this point, everyone is just waiting for the other shoe to drop. Marshal Foch travels to the French troops stationed at the Rhine in case Germany doesn't sign and the war starts anew. Rumors are making the rounds in the streets of Paris that the Germans will attend the signing ceremony only to shoot Woodrow Wilson and themselves. In Berlin, a contemporary by the name of Harry Graf Kessler sums up the chaotic state in his diary like this. In the afternoon, someone said that since the Entente declined to sign the treaty with reservations, the military leaders have rebelled against the government. The center withdrawn its support and the government has decided to resign. The ultimatum expires tonight. The tension is tremendous. The air feels oppressive. Counter-revolution, war, insurrection threaten like close storm clouds. Finally, around 6 p.m., not even an hour before the ultimatum runs out, the head of the German military, Wilhelm Gröner, informs Friedrich Ebert and the government that fighting off an Allied invasion is completely out of the question. Half an hour later, the Germans inform Marshal Foch of their intent to sign the treaty without reservations, and he passes on the information to the Big Four, who breathe a big sigh of relief. The ceremony is planned to take place on June 28th, and Clemenceau is determined, determined to make a big spectacle out of this. He insists that the ceremony will be held in the Hall of Mirrors in Versailles, where the German Empire had been declared. One thing that's important to mention here is that this runs much deeper 
than merely the desire to humiliate Germany by making them sign the treaty inside the Hall of Mirrors. One thing that's important to mention here is that this runs much deeper than merely Clemenceau's desire to humiliate Germany. This is about righting a historical wrong. It's supposed to show that the events of 1871 have been undone and the great humiliation of France by Germany has been avenged. Something Clemenceau had desperately desired his entire adult life. On June 26th, the German delegation leaves for Versailles, this time a much smaller in size. No experts or advisors, only Germany's new foreign minister, Hermann Müller, as well as a politician from the center party, accompanied by an escort of allied officers, making sure they get to Versailles safely. As you can imagine, it was quite the struggle to even find two people willing to sign the treaty personally, considering the hatred they would have to endure for this. This is also why Matthias Erzberger declines this job, saying that he had already put a target on his back when he signed the armistice back in November. Ain't that the truth? For a third time, a train takes a German delegation through war-torn France, arriving at their hotel early in the morning, only a few hours before the ceremony. Meanwhile, Clemenceau has every millimeter of the Versailles Palace cleaned and polished. A British diplomat remarks that the palace hasn't looked this ostentatious since the time of the French monarchy. On the day of the ceremony, honor guards on horseback with shining blue helmets line the entire driveway to the palace. In the courtyard, some of the French generals gather to witness the ceremony. I say some because Foch and a number of other high-ranking generals boycott the ceremony over their rejection of this, in their eyes, too lenient peace treaty. Thousands have gathered in and around the palace to witness this historic moment. Inside the Hall of Mirrors, the tables of the Allies and associated powers have been set up in a horseshoe formation with the Big Four at the center. The table at which the Germans are supposed to sign is placed in the center of the room, as one observer notes, like a guillotine. If you haven't seen what the Hall of Mirrors looks like, it really is a breathtaking stage for this event. Apart from the mirrors that lace the walls of this giant hall, you have crystal chandeliers hanging from the ceiling, red marble columns on golden pedestals, numerous golden statues, and above a mural of Ludwig XIV, it reads, Le roi gouverne par lui-même, the king rules by himself. Before the ceremony begins, the Hall of Mirrors is filled with chatter of those wondering, will the Germans actually sign? Will they kill themselves or Wilson? But all the noise dies down quickly as the leaders of the Allies enter to take their place. Clemenceau is seated right across from the table reserved for the signing of the treaty. And as Woodrow Wilson and David Lloyd George take a seat... Clemenceau's voice cuts through the silence as he orders, bring in the Germans. At quarter to three in the afternoon, the German delegation, accompanied by a French, American, British and Italian colonel, arrives at the palace. You can imagine these guys sweating bullets at this point, and it's not made better 
by the spectacle Clemenceau has turned this into. The German Foreign Minister Müller writes in his memoir that before they were called into the Hall of Mirrors, they had to wait in the lobby where, among others, the wives of diplomats and generals were seated. As they enter the lobby, everyone stretches their neck to get a glimpse of the Germans and what they look like. People are climbing onto chairs while others shout to remain seated. The Germans intentionally don't look anyone into the eyes here. They merely stare into nothingness in an attempt to show that while you might make us sign this treaty, you won't break our spirit. A British diplomat present at the ceremony describes the moment the Germans enter the Hall of Mirrors like this. Through the door at the end appear two hussars with silver chains. They march in single file. After them come four officers of France, Great Britain, America and Italy. And then, isolated and pitiable, come the two German delegates. Dr. Müller, Dr. Bell. The silence is terrifying. Their feet upon a strip of parquet between the Savonnier carpets echo hollow and duplicate. They keep their eyes fixed away from those 2,000 staring eyes, fixed upon the ceiling. They are deathly pale. They do not appear as representatives of a brutal militarism. The one is thin and pink-eyelidded, the other one is moon-faced and suffering. It is all most painful. They are conducted to their chairs. Clemenceau at once breaks the silence. Messieurs, he rasps, la séance est ouverte. He adds a few ill-chosen words. We are here to sign a treaty of peace. The Germans leap up anxiously when he has finished, since they know that they are the first ones to sign. William Martin, as if a theater manager, motions them pertinently to sit down again. Mantu translates Clemenceau's word into English. Then St. Quentin advances towards the Germans and with the utmost dignity leads them to the little table on which the treaty is expanded. There is general tension. As the Germans stand in front of the treaty, in a last act of defiance, they make a point of not reaching for the fountain pens sitting on the table, but pull out their own. A couple of days prior, French newspapers had reported that the fountain pens that the Germans were supposed to use had been donated by an association from Alsace-Lorraine. So instead, Müller brought his own pen and Bell had just taken one from their hotel. The two placed their signature and with their eyes still fixed on some distant point of the horizon, are led back to their small table. Here is what happened next in the words of the just-mentioned British diplomat. Suddenly from outside comes the crash of guns, thundering a salute. It announces to Paris that the Second Treaty of Versailles has been signed by Dr. Müller and Dr. Bell. Through the few open windows comes the sound of distant crowds, cheering hoarsely. You would think that this moment, this day that ends the most brutal and horrific war the world had ever seen, would be universal reason to celebrate. But even as the ink on the Treaty of Versailles is drying, doubts are already creeping in on all sides. The British diplomat, who we just heard, whose name was Harold Nicholson, was just one of the people who felt that the ceremony, rather than promoting the spirit of reconciliation, underscored revenge and bitterness. In his diary, he would conclude the day with the sentence, To bed, sick of life. 
a French novelist, pacifist, and Nobel Prize winner by the name of Romain Roland, writes in his diary on June 28th, At six o'clock in the evening, the sky boomed. At first I thought it was thunder, but the pounding continued. It signifies the signing of the peace treaty. The cannons greeted it with salvos of 20 rounds each. Sad peace. Ridiculous interlude between two massacres. But who thinks about tomorrow? Bogdorf Ranzau, the man who fought tooth and nail against Germany signing the treaty, will on his deathbed still think back to this moment and say, I've already died in Versailles. Marshal Ferdinand Foch, who believes the treaty is too weak on the Germans, will famously go down in history saying, this isn't a peace, this is an armistice for 20 years. The British Field Marshal, Sir Henry Wilson, notes of the ceremony that, quote, the naked truth is that the signature of the Bosch, the Germans, doesn't represent anyone or anything, that no peace has been made with Germany itself, that the rest of Europe is mired in chaos, that the French politicians have proven their collective incompetence. Woodrow Wilson's most important advisor, Edward House, calls the ceremony Clemenceau had conducted an act of subjugation like the ancient Romans would do to their enemies. He says, quote, The whole affair was elaborately staged and made as humiliating to the enemy as it well could be. Now, before we move on to anything else, I think it's worth touching upon whether these men were right in their assessment of the treaty. But rather than digging through every article of the Treaty of Versailles, let's look at it actually being put to the test. Because the Treaty of Versailles by no means ends war in Europe. Not at all. In fact, there is war in Europe even while the treaty is being signed. You have the Hungarian-Romanian war raging, during which Hungary undergoes a communist revolution. In fact, when you account for size and population, Hungary is the country that will be the most penalized by the Allies because they weren't too keen on giving anything to a communist country right at the center of Europe. In May 1919, the Greco-Turkish War breaks out as the Greeks aim to recover land they believed rightfully belonged to them before the Ottomans conquered it. The post-war order faces its first real challenge not even a year after the treaty is passed, when the Soviet-Polish War breaks out. Both the Soviet Union and Poland contested the border between the two that was drawn up in Paris, and very soon after gaining independence, the Polish drive eastward, capturing what was supposed to be Lithuanian and Ukrainian territory. The West, afraid of Bolshevism making its way into Europe, support Poland in this war, and by 1921, Poland defeats the Soviet Union, and the two sign the Treaty of Riga. Now, according to the vision of Versailles, this is something that should have been resolved peacefully. Instead, the Polish enforce their new border that engulfs significant portions of land that are not majority Polish by brute force. It also brings the two international pariahs, Germany and the Soviet Union, closer together in their desire to see Poland disappear from the world map. In Germany at the time, you would often see Poland described as a seasonal state, meaning it would only exist for a little while if some Germans had their way. 
The outcome of the Polish-Soviet war showed to everyone that, if you were strong enough and played your cards right, no League of Nations was going to stop you from grabbing land. Self-determination doesn't mean anything if no one is willing to stand up for it. So that part of the treaty is out of the window. The second test for the Treaty of Versailles revolves around France and Germany. Now, while Germany never paid most of the reparations it owed according to the treaty, the reparations put a real strain on the country's economy coming out of World War I. In 1921, Germany will fail to make a scheduled payment of 20 million marks, and this opens up a serious political dilemma for the Allies. The British and Americans are willing to be lenient on this because they know, as Keynes had said, that Europe couldn't fully recover financially as long as Germany was struggling. They want Germany to be able to produce goods themselves, and more importantly for them, have the money to buy foreign goods. France is nothing short of enraged by this, because the Americans are strictly refusing to even consider any kind of debt forgiveness or restructuring for France. So they look at Germany, the country that had lost the war, slowly recovering while they themselves are crushed by the huge amount of debt they owe to the Americans. In addition to that, since the war ended, the view that Germany was being treated unfairly gained more and more traction in the United States and Great Britain. For the French, the final straw is reached in 1923, when Germany defaults on coal shipments for the 34th time in three years. On January 11th, French and Belgian troops move into and occupy the German area of the Ruhr Valley, taking what they are owed by force. Now, technically, this was legal under the Treaty of Versailles, but the Americans and British refused to back the occupation, leaving France internationally isolated. The Germans react with protests and strikes, during which the French kill roughly 100 men, only reaffirming the view of many in the West that a vindictive France was the threat to peace in Europe and not the Germans. Even the Polish and Czechoslovakians oppose the occupation, as they are worried about their financial ties to Germany being harmed. The left-leaning German government is increasingly discredited by their perceived weakness in the face of the occupation, in return, the far-right, not yet the Nazis, but far-right nonetheless, gains traction under the banner of uniting in defense of the fatherland. Ultimately, the occupation of the Ruhr Valley would end up being a financial and political disaster for France. What puts an end to the reparations crisis is an international agreement called the Dawes Plan which coupled the amount of reparations Germany had to pay to its economic performance. It also reduced the total amount of money owed to France, but, crucially, not the amount that France owed to the United States. The fallout from this leads to the conservative French government under Prime Minister Poincaré getting voted out in favor of a left-leaning coalition that would seek a more reconciliatory approach with Germany. The way you could sum up this series of events in regards to the Treaty of Versailles is that Germany had successfully altered a centerpiece of the treaty by simply not complying and daring the Allies to do anything about it. And while the Ruhr crisis is followed by another crisis in Germany, the hyperinflation crisis, in 1925, 
after introducing a new currency, Germany is not doing too bad. It's undergoing an economic boom, in parts thanks to American credit. In 1925, Germany and France also signed the Locarno Treaties, which signals Germany's entry into the League of Nations and ends its international isolation. One of the reasons why this is such a huge win for the Germans is because these treaties enshrine Germany's western border to remain as is, guaranteed by Britain and Italy, but intentionally leaves Germany's eastern borders open to revision, much to the horror of countries like Poland. One Polish statesman at the time would sum up this agreement by saying Germany was officially asked to attack in the east in return for peace in the West. Józef Pilsudski, who would in 1926 overthrow Poland's democratically elected government in the May coup, said of Locarno, every honest Pole spits when he hears this word. So despite the immense amount of bitterness the Treaty of Versailles instilled on the Germans, if we look past the moral aspect of it, Germany was not in that terrible of a position. Reparations were actually just one aspect on which the Germans got off scot-free for deliberately not complying with the Treaty of Versailles. Another aspect is the military, because the treaty limits the German army to 100,000 men. Right from the get-go, though, Germany would build up what would be called the Black Reichswehr, or Reichsdefense, a secret army receiving military training covertly. They would also train pilots on gliders, which made it easier to turn them into fighter pilots later on. This went as far as opening up a German tank and fighter pilot school in the Soviet Union to prepare for the next war. So the Germans had plenty of wiggle room to go around the Treaty of Versailles, which doesn't mean they didn't have legitimate grievances. This is also what made the position of the Allies leading up to World War II so difficult. Because when later the Nazis would pursue their aggressive policy of expansion by demanding Austria or the German-speaking parts of Czechoslovakia, they could always point to the idea of self-determination that played such a big role in Versailles. And even if we look beyond Germany, interwar Europe certainly didn't resemble what the treaty or the men writing it had envisioned. Because if you remember, the goal of the Great War for someone like Woodrow Wilson was, quote, to make the world safe for democracy. Slowly but surely, though, instead, Europe would turn into what historian Mark Mazowa called the Dark Continent. The Hungarian Soviet Republic collapses after losing their war against Romania in 1919, and in 1920 is succeeded by a one-party dictatorship under Milos Horthy. The Italians, despite being on the winning side of the war, deeply felt that they had been scammed. They saw hundreds of thousands of their men die, only to feel ignored by the other great powers at Versailles. In Italy, this will be known as the mutilated victory. And what that gives you is an intense desire to right a wrong. This is the soil that fascism will grow out of. Fueled by this resentment, the Italian fascists launched their march on Rome in 1922 and take over Italy. Bulgaria, 
a country that, proportional to its size and population, was treated much harsher by the Allies than Germany, would suffer a coup by the right-wing Zveno that sees political parties and trade unions abolished. Less than a year later, that regime gets replaced by a de facto royal dictatorship under Boris III. Poland, as just mentioned, undergoes a military coup in 1926, which doesn't turn it into a fascist dictatorship, but certainly more authoritarian than it had been. In the West, Portugal and Spain abandon democracy and descend into violence as well. Spain becomes a military dictatorship in 1923 under Miguel Primo de Riviera. The first Portuguese republic is overthrown in 1926, with its democratically elected president fleeing the country after a military junta grabs the reins of power. 1929 is the year Yugoslavia's King Alexander dissolves parliament and proclaims a royal dictatorship, only to be assassinated five years later. Lithuania, Latvia and Estonia all undergo a military coup, Lithuania in 1926 and the other two in 1934. Democracy in Austria comes to an end in 1933 as well, when Chancellor Engelbert Dollfuss assumes dictatorial powers and shuts down parliament. By the late 1930s, there are only two states that popped up in 1918 that survived as liberal democracies, Finland and Czechoslovakia. So I think it's fair to say that the Treaty of Versailles did not succeed in creating a peaceful democratic world order. And this isn't even getting into things like the Middle East, which is where the Allies really screwed up, if you ask me. To be fair to the men at the Paris Peace Conference, though, looking back, it couldn't have been any other way. Put simply, in an effort to never see something like World War I happen again, they had bitten off more than they could chew. Here is how historian Michael S. Nyberg puts it. In the end, it remains hard to see how any treaty could have healed the wounds of 1914-18. to 18. In the end, it remains hard to see how any treaty could have healed the wounds of 1914-18. to 18. That war may have begun because of the decisions of a small group of elites, but it had quickly become a classic people's war, unleashing the energies of a continent and transforming societies in unimagined ways. The Treaty of Versailles tried to put elites back in charge and at least attempt to calm the passions that the war had unleashed. Many people at the conference knew that no treaty could possibly achieve that end. They worried about new hatreds and passions that the end of the war would leave behind. They were right to worry. And we know now how long those embers would retain the ability to cause major fires. It is perhaps asking too much to have expected the men of 1919 to have prevented them all, but it is also unavoidable to conclude that their work did as much harm as good. Those embers that Michael Nyberg talks about glow especially bright in Germany, but less because of what is in the treaty rather than what it represents. It's a symbol of a defeat Germany was simply unable to come to terms with. They could not accept that this war that had taken so many men, so many sacrifices, had not just been in vain, but had left them worse off than before. So the Treaty of Versailles became this totem, not just for the right, but the entire country. And this feeling of betrayal, bitterness, and anger 
that Versailles had unleashed totally overrode the image of the Republic, the German Revolution, and democracy itself. In the minds of many, it all morphed into the same thing, deserving the same amount of disdain and hatred. So it's no wonder that the right would call the Treaty of Versailles Germany's true constitution. Getting back to our story, after Germany signs the treaty at Versailles, it is ratified at the National Assembly in July, and now there is only one step left for Germany to complete its rebirth as a democracy. That step is coming up with a constitution, and this process has been undergoing for months now. While the Allies are drafting up the Treaty of Versailles, while Freikorps and socialists battle in the streets of Munich and Berlin, the government representatives work on giving Germany its new constitution. What they come up with transforms Germany from a previous monarchy to suddenly one of the most democratic countries in the world. The German people get to vote on the legislature, i.e. the parliament. They also get to choose the Reichspräsident and vote on laws directly via referendum. It enshrines the victories of the revolution and law and gives millions of people who did not have a voice in the Kaiserreich an opportunity to be heard. With the gift of hindsight, you can nitpick things that turn into problems later, but at the end of the day, the constitution that the men and women in Weimar came up with was solid. With one grave exception. Among some of the people there, people who might consider themselves centrists, there is still this doubt of the idea of democracy and political parties lingering. What if, suddenly... Germany gets his own version of the Bolsheviks and they take over parliament thanks to the fickle convictions of the masses. What can we do to prevent this? Previously, the person keeping a lid on this stuff was the Kaiser and his regime, but there is no Kaiser anymore. What they do have is a president. So a lot of people belonging to the liberal German Democratic Party and the Catholic Center Party push for the president to have massive powers in the new democratic system. Here's what the National Assembly decides at the end. According to the Weimar Constitution, the president is voted on by the people for seven years. He is able to dissolve parliament and call for new elections. He can submit laws to a public referendum if he doesn't like something that parliament is passing. He appoints and is able to fire the chancellor and the ministers making up the government. He is also the commander-in-chief of the armed forces who are allowed to operate domestically and has the power to declare a state of emergency and suspend civil rights. They could have just as well called the position of the president the substitute Kaiser, considering how powerful he is. Now, you might wonder if the social democrats after all, the most powerful party here, doesn't put their foot down against this. Do they not see the risk of a dictator taking over the country? And the truth is, no. Because the president, right now, is their guy. It's Friedrich Ebert. So they have no problem with him becoming this powerful. There is one man at the assembly, though, that objects to this. And his name is Richard Müller. He is the speaker for the Social Democratic Party, and while the National Assembly is debating the position of the president, he says the following. 
We have to reckon with the fact that one day, another man from another party, perhaps from a reactionary party that yearns for a coup, will take that place. Shouldn't we take precautions against such cases? Unfortunately, his concerns fall on deaf ears. And on the 31st of July, 1919, the National Assembly passes the Weimar Constitution, and this concludes the founding of the Weimar Republic. Our story began in the small cramped room of the man who had, in all but name, become Germany's military dictator, Erich Ludendorff, realizing that the war was lost. It ends with the dawn of the Republic in Weimar, a republic that is burdened without a doubt, burdened with the Treaty of Versailles, its leadership burdened by the violence they unleashed on the streets of Berlin and Munich. Typically, when you think of the Weimar Republic, it's a story of hope and ultimately defeat. You have this, for its time, progressive nation with one of the most educated populations on earth that had all these accomplishments. The eight-hour workday, a push to find peace with its mortal enemy, France, advancing the rights of women and LGBT people. And then slowly, you see this country turn away from the republic, slowly descending into fascist insanity. In essence, that story is true, but what I hope you learned over the course of this series is that the things we associate with the end of the Republic, fascist death squads viciously hunting down their enemies, the fear of communism slowly driving average citizens into a frenzy, leaving them frothing at the mouth, innocent people getting executed in cold blood, all these things were there from the start. The German Republic was birthed in violence. Now you might say, wait a minute. Yeah, we heard the story of the German Revolution, but what about all the stuff that comes after? What about the Beer Hall Putsch or the German October? What about the stock market crash and the rise of Nazism? What the Fight for the Republic series covers is what you might call one of the four phases of Weimar Germany. The first one is the phase that sees the German Revolution and the founding of the Republic. The second phase covers the crisis years until roughly 1923. And the last two are upswing and descent into fascism. Now for me personally, the two phases I think are the most important and the most interesting are the beginning and the end of the Weimar Republic. Because you really don't understand some of the obstacles that German democracy faces in the late 30s unless you witnessed its birth. For instance, why, even in the face of an ascendant far right, why is the left this divided? Why can't they see clearly what dangers they are all in? Social Democrat or Communist? Well, now you know. It's because of the rift that opened up at the start of World War I and which became a chasm during the revolution. So what I can say right now is that this won't be the last time you hear me talk about the Weimar Republic. It's a topic that never ceases to fascinate me and is so full of lessons for our lives today. Now, apart from a future project, 
I have two more episodes that didn't really make the cut to be included in this eight-part series. And I'm going to release them as bonus shows for our patrons. One is going to touch on the military revolt that will happen not even a year later from where our series ends. It's technically not part of the time span the series covers, but looking at this event, we can see the chickens come home to roost for some of the main characters of the show. In the second bonus episode, I thought it would be fun to answer your questions about the series and tie up some smaller loose ends. Like what will happen to Friedrich Ebert or what is my personal opinion on the Spartacus uprising and so on. If you are listening to this right now and want to get some of your questions in, head over to Twitter or Instagram and send us a message. Email is also possible. One thing I'm immensely grateful for and which I hope you enjoyed as well is that it was possible for me to release this entire series without a single ad placed anywhere. This was only possible because this show has patrons that finance it entirely. No sponsors, no ad reads went into the production of the Fight for the Republic series. And if you want to be one of these amazing people, please head over to patreon.com slash danarrows. As a little bonus, you can secure yourself a piece of the Fight for the Republic series. We've decided to print up some postcards with the amazing artwork that Ed Scotch Draws on Twitter has drawn up for the show. If you sign up as a patron now, you will receive one of these postcards, handwritten by yours truly, containing one of the covers of the eight episodes making up the series. Link to Patreon in the episode description. These will not be reprinted. It's only a limited run. So if you want to support the show and grab yourself a nice memento, go ahead and join the club. Of course, you'll also get access to all of our bonus shows that way. So what now? We're not going to return to Weimar immediately, but going to turn towards other no less intriguing events for a while. Last thing I want to say before we depart for now is from the bottom of my heart, thank you to everyone who listened to this series, who shared it or gave it a review on iTunes or Spotify. I know it required quite a bit of patience to follow the show through to its end. If you made it nonetheless, you are amazing and I'm so grateful to have you as a listener and I hope you remain a listener for a long, long time. Take care out there. Bye.